the war poet Siegfried Sassoon called the Menin Gate Memorial in Ypres a sepulchre of crime. He felt that the men listed on its panels were nameless names. Yet on every battlefield of the Western Front, nearly half of those who died had no known grave. How could so many men just disappear? What happened to this generation of missing soldiers along the old front line? When you begin to research the men who fought and died in the Great War or travel along the battlefields of the Western Front, you quickly realise that one of the dominating stories of the conflict is that of missing soldiers, men who have no known grave. It's a subject that confuses and perplexes many people. There's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding. So in this podcast, we'll look at the story of the missing and we'll ask a few essential questions. How did soldiers go missing? How many were missing? What was the debate over whether to commemorate the missing or not? What was the work of the Graves Registration Units in the Imperial War Graves Commission? Does the work still continue? And what is there to see today? When we look at the story of missing soldiers in the Great War, first we have to ask ourselves, how do these soldiers go missing? How do men completely disappear? And in that, I think back to some of the stories that the veterans told me in the 1980s and 90s, some of which, I have to confess, were so graphic that I probably couldn't describe them here. But a couple come to mind. Albert Banfield served in the 13th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, the 3rd South Downs Battalion, and at Ypres in the summer of 1917, not long after the offensive of 3rd Ypres had begun, he was moving up near St Julian across some duckboard tracks. It had been raining since the very evening of the first day of the battle, and that, in combination with the shell fire, had turned the ground around St Julian into this muddy morass. As they were moving up, he remembered that a shell landed on the duckboards just behind the scout that was leading the battalion forward. It killed him instantly and tossed his body up into the air and down into a massive shell hole just by the trackway. He disappeared beneath the mud, beneath the slime. No one was brave enough to go in there to try and rescue the body and give it a decent burial. And he disappeared with no known grave or no grave that could be marked. And then I think of Albert Chester's on the Levante front in northern France. The positions, their front-line positions, were shelled, and he turned the traverse in a trench, leaving one of his mates behind him, when a shell landed right on the fire step and blew him to pieces. Albert went back to see what had happened, and all that was left was his smoking boots, his two army boots with his feet still inside, and that's what they buried. Albert was never sure whether that grave was ever properly marked. And then I think of Reg Glenn of the Sheffield City Battalion, who went forward into the attack at Serre on the first day of the Somme and saw those men he'd grown up with mowed down by the German machine guns. In the months that followed, he could see through the trench periscopes bodies in no man's land, men hanging on the German wire. And then in the spring of 1917, he went forward with the Padre to try and identify and bury what was left, and so little remained of these men, and so little had survived the perilous battlefield and its shelling 
that there was not much for them to bury. This was the fate of so many, of course. And we can't generalise about the fate of those who went missing in the Great War. With big attacks like the Somme, attacks that failed, men would go over the top, into no man's land, be killed in the gap between the British front line and the German front line. Often their remains would lay out on the battlefield for many months, and as Reg Glenn and the Padre found, there would be virtually nothing left to bury, if anything at all. In battles like Passchendaele, with the thick glutinous mud, bodies could disappear into that mud, be blown into muddy shell holes, and never be seen again. And in the German offences of 1918, as the Germans attacked and overran British positions and pushed us back, they captured trenches full of British dead that were buried in shell holes and sometimes in those trenches. Graves may have been marked, may have been recorded by the Germans, but that information often rarely got back to British sources. So those men, their graves, were lost. And we might think that during the war, with so many dead on the battlefields, that soldiers somehow became blind to the fact that these bodies were there. But we know from personal accounts that men cared about the fact that the bodies were out there and they couldn't be recovered. What they knew was that these men would be posted missing and this would be great heartache for the families of these soldiers. So when we read an account like the Journal of Private Fraser, a Scotsman who served with the Canadians in the Great War, we discover, for example, that after the Battle of the Saint-Loire Craters in March 1916, just south of Ypres, the bodies of Canadians and British soldiers littered the battlefield around the mine craters there, and Fraser and his men went out to try and recover some of the identity discs from these bodies. The Germans spotted them and began to shell them, and one man dropped the sandbag that they'd put so many dog tags in, perhaps hundreds, and a shell struck it and blew it to pieces all those dog tags lost, and the chance of proving these men were dead, not just missing, lost with it. So what was the process behind how a soldier could be reported if he was missing? Well, every platoon commander, and often the platoon sergeants, would have a little pocket book in which would be kept the names of the men in that platoon, and this would be replicated at company level and also battalion level. Now, before an action, the officer in charge would know who was present, and afterwards they were required to have a roll call. If they'd survived, or the sergeant had survived, or one of the men, they would go through the list of names that they had, call out those names. If you were there, you'd say present. If you weren't, of course, nothing would be said. And then there would be an opportunity to go back and say what had happened to these men, and you could volunteer the fact that you saw them killed in no man's land, or hanging on the German wire, or sniped by Fritz, whatever the case was. So this was how records were made. Men known to be killed in action were listed as killed in action and the relatives informed. Those, and so many of them, for which there were no witnesses to their fate, were reported as missing. And this meant families at home had no idea what had happened to them. And the fates of these missing soldiers could be held in the balance for months, if not more than a year, and in some cases several years, before it was officially accepted that they were dead. And that meant the people at home could hope beyond hope that somehow they'd survived. Somehow they were languishing in a German prison of war camp or in a hospital having lost their memory. But yet they were there on the battlefield, killed on the day that they'd gone missing. Very few ever came home in that hope beyond hope. So how many were missing? In 1937 a book was published called The Immortal Heritage, 
that explained the work of the then Imperial, now Commonwealth, Wargraves Commission. And in that book, it was stated that more than 518,000 soldiers were still missing. And on average, for the majority of the major battlefields of the Great War, this equated to about 50% of the dead. In the back of the book is a list of the casualties for each area. It shows the number of named burials in identified graves, the number of no known grave commemorations, the number of unknown soldiers buried in war graves, and then the total of missing bodies as of 1937. And when we break this down by area, in France, there were 317,770 named burials in identified graves in cemeteries across France. At that stage, just under 1,900 of them. In addition, there were 213,077 no-known grave commemorations. So those were names that would be added to memorials to the missing. And of those, 105,351 were buried as unknown soldiers in cemeteries across those battlefields in France. So for France that meant 107,726 men were still unaccounted for, were still missing. Their bodies had never been recovered for burial. In Belgium, with over 430 different burial grounds, 174 of them around Ypres, there were 92,288 named burials in identified graves in these cemeteries. For names that would be added to memorials to the missing, there was 102,424. And then for the unknown graves in cemeteries, there were 46,791. And that meant that in Belgium, there were still missing 55,633 men. When you look at the total for both France and Belgium, the British sector of the Western Front, it meant that in 1937, 163,359 soldiers from Britain and the Commonwealth were still missing, had never been found, and were still out there on the battlefields. A legion, indeed. So with this vast legion of missing soldiers, how do you commemorate them? What do you do to commemorate those men? The ones who had known graves, it was obvious they were marked by wooden crosses and the discussion was already underway in the 1920s as to what they would replace those with. Maybe stone crosses or, as Kipling suggested, memorial tablets or headstones. And it's those headstones that we know from the cemeteries as we visit them today. But with the missing, it's more complex. There is no grave. What was the historical precedence for the commemoration of missing in previous wars? Well, if we look at a battle like Waterloo, and after Waterloo the dead were moved to burial pits on the battlefields, some bodies of officers that could be identified were taken away for separate burial, but many officers, often from wealthy and titled families, were buried in the mass graves along with the men. After that battle, in a chapel in the town of Waterloo itself, memorial plaques were placed on the wall to commemorate these men. But the only entitlement to them was having enough money to have such a plaque made and placed. The families of ordinary soldiers who'd fallen had no such funds, no such choice, no chance of such a plaque being erected to their son or brother or husband. But a century later the Great War was different. This war had touched every family in the land. 
from every class, creed, occupation and background. And with missing soldiers, it was felt that there was an injustice here somehow, that these families, the families of those missing soldiers, would have nothing to see after the war, no grave. But they would need what we'd now call closure as much as anybody else. And there were many voices that put forward the idea of commemorating these men, Rudyard Kipling amongst them, having lost his own son, missing at the Battle of Luz in September 1915. But how to do it? One early idea, once the concept of using headstones had been decided upon, was to place headstones along the walls of cemeteries to commemorate the men who were missing in that area of the battlefield. So if you took a cemetery like Tyne Cot, headstones would be placed along the wall to commemorate the men who died in the fields alongside or in the road opposite when the approach is from the village of Zonnebeek. Now to attempt that research now, with the records that we have with digital databases, it would be a, a gargantuan task. In the 1920s, it was impossible to work that out, so that was eventually abandoned. And the idea instead of having memorials to the missing, key monuments on the sites where the British and Commonwealth forces had fought, and commemorate the men, the missing on the walls of those memorials, this was considered the better option. And the Imperial Wargraves commissioned, commissioned architects, such as Edwin Lutyens and Reginald Blumfield, to design and then build these great monuments, from the Menning Gate to mighty Thiepval. The Tynecott Memorial was the first to be unveiled in June of 1927, quickly followed by the Menning Gate. And over the course of the next 11 years, leading up to the construction and unveiling of the Villas Bretonneux Memorial in 1938, a year before the outbreak of the Second World War, memorials were built on all the key sites where the British and Commonwealth forces had taken part in battles along the Western Front. The most significant memorials, the top five if you like, were Thiepval with 73,367 names, the Menning Gates with 54,896 the Arras Memorial with 35,925, Tyne Cot with 34,957, and the Luz Memorial with 20,633. There were many others besides, and those figures are again from 1937. They've all been adjusted downwards now, because as the years have progressed, the missing have been found. More of that later. But when you add to the mix other theatres of war, the Basra Memorial has 41,048 names, and the Hellas Memorial, 20,752. So the top five memorials that commemorate the largest number of missing from the Great War includes four from the Western Front and one from former Mesopotamia, now Iraq. The work to recover the dead and bury them, and later to search for the missing, began, of course, during the war itself. In the early years of the war, the burial of the dead was haphazard, Soldiers would use already consecrated ground, which is why there are so many communal cemeteries in the early battlefields of the First World War. Once trench warfare began, regimental and battalion burial grounds were made just behind the trenches. Graves were not always properly registered at that time. Again, it was up to men on the ground to do this. Padres, it was one of their jobs. And a padre records in his memoirs that having recorded the details of many graves along his sector of the front, he lost his notebook in the mud and with it all that information. By 1918, every division had a divisional burial officer that had a team of men working under him. Men often who were medically downgraded, no longer fit for frontline combat service, but could be used to go out and search for and bury the dead. 
And when we look at some of the cemeteries from the 1918 battlefields, close, for example, to the village of Effie on the Somme, there's a whole collection of burial sites there made by the Divisional Burial Officer of the 33rd Division, including Domino Cemetery. Their divisional flash was a domino with three black dots and three black dots for 33. That's how the cemetery got its name. So by the end of the war, the burial of the dead was a bit more organised. As the war came to an end, a new unit was brought in to bury and look for the dead. And that was the Labour Corps. It had been formed in 1917 to do manual tasks on the battlefield or behind the lines. And in addition, they were joined by a huge pool of manpower from the Chinese Labour Corps, who became greatly involved in this task. Initially, their task was to go out and exhume the bodies of soldiers already buried in military cemeteries, where it was decided to close that cemetery and move it into another one. Tynecott, again, is a good example of that. We mentioned this in a previous podcast, where teams of Labour Corps men and men from the Chinese Labour Corps went out and closed cemeteries and moved the dead into Tynecott for reburial. But increasingly, their job was to also look for burials, to look for soldiers who were missing. How did they do this? Well, as time went on, these men became very skilled in identifying ground where clearly there were human remains, whether this was by the colour of the ground or the types of plants or weeds that were growing there. I mentioned in that previous podcast about Tyne Cot how soldiers from these Labour Corps units would go out with the cleaning rod of a vicar's machine gun and poke it into the ground and pull up pieces of flesh and smell, and if it smelt like a rancid pork pie, they knew that a body was there and they would begin digging and uncover whatever lay beneath. When the remains of a soldier was found, obviously they were looking to see if it was a soldier from a British and Commonwealth unit. They were not there to bury the dead from Germany or France or Belgium or the United States of America. If it was clearly a British soldier, they would then have to go through the remains of that soldier to try and find any identifying objects. Soldiers wore dog tags, one up to the end of 1916, two from 1916 onwards. Fabian Ware, one of the founders of the Wargraves Commission, had helped see this change from one tag to two. So if it was a body from a later battlefield of the war, in theory, the green octagonal tag should be with the body. But it wasn't always, and it was found that the decomposition of the body had sometimes destroyed the tag. But it still meant that one of these Labour Corps men had to root around in there, looking for that tag. And the mere thought of that now, a century later, is grim indeed. They would look for personal artefacts, and when you look at the concentration records that are on the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission website for soldiers, you can see that all sorts of artefacts were found with the body that helped to identify men. I have the medals of a soldier found in Delville Wood, who was identified by an ink pen that was in his pocket that had his name on it. So objects like this were used to help identify these soldiers, and it meant that a great deal of work and effort went into this. They wouldn't just randomly look, they would choose an area and they would use wartime maps, often one to 40,000 sheets of a given area, use the map squares to map off an area of battlefield and then go around and search in that area. And this has led to the body density maps that fascinate people that sometimes pop up in threads on Twitter. And these are maps that show the number of burials recovered from a given square, not the number of men who died in that square. But nevertheless, they give us an insight into the sort of work that was going on at that time. However, this work was not without its critics. It was found at Ypres that one labour unit had made a lot of mistakes in the reburial of the dead at Hoog, 
and when teams went across those burials again and looked at what was beneath the crosses, they found that some men were buried under the wrong cross and some where they were shown as being unknown soldiers, it was actually discovered that these were identifiable casualties. So in the summer of 1921, things changed, and they changed for a couple of reasons, partly to do with the criticisms of the way some of these labour units operated, and much of the criticism was done by people I don't think really who quite understood the grim nature of this task and how difficult it was. But also the army was demobilising, the war had ended, and the fragment of the army that was still left in France and Flanders was gradually diminishing, and these men were going home. There was a move then to use instead the teams of the Imperial Wargraves Commission rather than Gray's Registration Units and the Labour Corps. But how to recover the dead? An idea was muted to give a bounty of two francs for every British body that would be declared by a local, whether that was in Belgium or France. But given the economic circumstances of the time, there appears to have been a reluctance to pay this quite small sum. And what that meant between 1921 and the summer of 1923, one of the key rebuilding periods on the Western Front, when villages and towns were rebuilt, it meant that there was no incentive for building companies, for workers, to clearance, civilian clearance parties, to declare the bodies that they were finding. Because if they declared them, it would slow down their work and affect their pay for the work that they were actually doing. This led to a suggestion that somehow the missing of the Great War, who had still yet to be found, had somehow been abandoned by the British government. But this was the problem that the Commission, the government, everyone faced. What was the balance? Because the balance was between the idea of a Churchillian preservation of the ground, Winston Churchill had come to Ypres just after the war and suggested the whole area be forested and preserved for future generations, but Britain had gone to war for Belgium, and the right of Belgian people to live freely their lives. So that never happened, and the people had come back. And as they'd come back, they wanted their farms, their houses, their villages, their towns rebuilt. So how to strike the balance between those two things, and at the same time recover the dead. But the recovery work did continue under the Imperial Wargraves Commission. And when you look at the records that are online now, for each of the casualties, particularly in key concentration cemeteries, like London Cemetery Extension on the Somme, Cabaret Rouge Cemetery near Arras, or Cement House Cemetery at Ypres, you see that significant numbers of men were still being found in the 1930s and in those final years leading up to the outbreak of World War II, which neatly leads me on to the work today. Does that work continue? In the 1970s, there were quite a few building projects along the Western Front. It was slightly before my time of visiting. I was still playing with airfix kits then. But a motorway was built at Ypres, and there seems to have been very little declaration of any human remains found there. And you'd expect to find them, particularly as it cut through an area like Polygon Wood and Blackwatch Corner. When I first went across to the battlefields in 1982, I remember hearing the story of a New Zealand soldier who'd been found near Ocean Villas, and identified by his buttons. When I lived on the Somme, the recovery of human remains was a monthly, if not sometimes weekly, event. I even had someone come to the door of the house we lived in with the remains of a Canadian soldier and saying there was more in the bank at the back and he was recovered and eventually reburied with full military honours by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. But of course in recent times there have been big projects. The diggers at Ypres in the late 1990s and early 2000s recovered huge numbers of dead from the ground around Bozinger. And with the pheasant wood dig, 
and the creation of a brand new military cemetery near Frommel. This was an unprecedented recovery of the missing of the Great War. And as each year passes, the number of soldiers that's found doesn't seem to decline. It somehow seems to increase and it will be part of that legacy of the Great War that will continue for many, many years to come. So what is there to see of the missing today? Obviously, there are the memorials to the missing. The Menin Gate, where you can stand at 8 o'clock each evening and listen to the last post being played. Thiepval, mighty Thiepval, out in the fields of the heartland of the Somme. The Luz Memorial overlooking the ground where that great push of 1915 took place. La Tour with its old contemptibles and territorials killed in the early battles of the war. La Fert-Sujoire down on the Marne, covering Mons to the retreat and beyond. The Soissons Memorial from the forgotten battles on the Chemin des Dames and the Second Battle of the Marne in 1918. There are so many to see, each with their own character, their own designs, their own features that makes them unique. And when you stand there and look at the long lists of names almost disappearing into infinity, the names engraved on the panels of these memorials. It is exactly that that prompts you to ask, whatever happened to these men? What was the fate of the missing? Such is the power of these mighty memorials. And in the cemeteries, of course, are all those unknown soldiers. The missing are not just in the fields, they are in the cemeteries. These thousands and thousands of graves of unknown soldiers when we walk in Tynecott and see that over 70% of the dead in there are unknown, whoever they are and depending on when and where they died, they will be commemorated on one of the memorials, perhaps in the Tynecott Memorial that looks down upon the graves or back in Ypres at the Menin Gate. And when you look at these graves of unknown soldiers, many of them give tantalising clues as to who these men might have been. In one cemetery I remember seeing the grave of an unknown captain of a yeomanry regiment killed in 1914 and thinking surely there can't be many from that unit who died in the early phase of the war. But when you look, there just isn't sufficient evidence to tie that grave to the name of an actual soldier, so near yet so far. But as we walk amongst these unknown soldiers' headstones, and I find myself being drawn to them more and more over the last few years, are they really nameless names as Sassoon suggested? I think of Corselet British Cemetery, that once was on the doorstep of where I lived, and the grave, the recent grave there, of Russell Bazisto, an Australian, found on the battlefields in 1998, with his steel helmet, his rifle in his hands, and his dog tag that identified who he was. A family from the other side of the world travelled to the Somme to make sure that their ancestor was no nameless name, that he was a man who stepped forward and volunteered and gave his all. And by travelling all those miles, they reminded us that Russell Bazisto was not just their name to cherish, it was ours too. The last page of the Great War is yet to be turned, and the missing is part of that story, part of all our stories, and worthy of our concern. The story of the missing of the Great War gives us a terrible insight into grief, into the torment of parents thinking what may have happened to their son of wives wondering about their husband, of children forever imagining the fate of their dad, until perhaps in later life they stood at one of those great monuments and saw his name carved in stone and looked out across the fields, fields that still keep their secret, that still hold the missing of the Great War along the old front line.
You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor, and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at Old Front Line Pod. And have a look at the podcast websites, oldfrontline.co.uk. Until we meet again, along the Old Front Line.